WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now. Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening, this is Abby Newton, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Now this weekend, I was in Atlanta, Georgia for a conference. I was sitting on the plane, and on the way back, I started to think about history. I started to think about the plane and how it was made. I started to think about who made it and how this simple idea has turned into a system in which we are dependent. And as I thought more about this, I thought about that day, that day in history in which the Wright brothers took flight for the first time. And so, to begin the show today, I thought I would talk about this day in history. According to A&E History Network, this day in history in 1990 was the day the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work in ending Cold War tensions. He engaged in four summits with Ronald Reagan and was also respected for the non-intervention policy that he implemented in Eastern Europe as smaller countries began creating democratic political systems. Now, in this day on exposure, we talk about something very similar to the political tensions. Our government shut down. We invite an MSU professor and economist to educate us on the issue. Also in exposure, we talk about the effects of video games on healthy eating. Later, we highlight a chat that I had with a few cast members from Flashdance. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Welcome back. I am Abby Newton. You are listening to Impact Exposure. It has been 15 days since the start of the government shutdown when 350,000 federal workers were furloughed and some military training was canceled. Americans are frustrated and there is concern that the government could default on its bonds. We invited Eric Scorsoni, an economist and expert in public finance, to the studio to talk about the shutdown and its effects. What thoughts come to your mind when you think about our democratic government shutting down, whether it's from a professor standpoint, an economist standpoint, or just an Eric Scorsoni standpoint? Well, I think it's, um, you know, we're, it's a challenging time, and I think this reflects our political situation with a lot of divisive, you know, issues. I mean, I think this reflects that more broadly. Mm-hmm. And I think the length of it is, you know, becoming concerning, you know, as whether they can find a deal or not. But I, you know, I think it's a reflection of where we are as a country to some extent. And I think it, you see it at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level. And so I think, you know, we have to work through these very tough issues and find that pragmatic middle again that America has had for so long. And I think we'll see how that evolves now in this situation. And do you think it is possible? Yeah, I think it will, and I think actually sometimes you need kind of crisis situations <laughs> to find to Rally find the, the common maybe. ground. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's the bottom line. I I think you see it from both sides of the mm-hmm. aisle now. People starting to say, you know, we need to come together. We need to find compromise, which is what the American system of politics is all about. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know I think we're starting to see some of that evolve, and it's unfortunate it has to come to this kind of precipice, but you know that's the way it is. Right. And, you know, the House is controlled by the Republicans, and then the Senate is controlled by the Democrats. What other things can we see that contributes maybe to this um, giant conflict within making decisions in Congress and in the government? Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of this is because the Republican Party split between, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the sort of more conservative side and the more moderate side. And I think that's what's playing out. And, you know, Speaker Boehner's been unwilling to take a vote, you know, and to get some of the Democrats to come with him along with moderate Republicans. And so I think a lot of the story is that it's playing out. Yeah, it's playing out here in Michigan. We're seeing that as well, and to some extent, between the different factions in the Republican Party. I think that's probably the big story here that's going to emerge, you know, over time is how that is going to get resolved. Mm-hmm. What are the consequences of how it is resolved? because there certainly will be some. And so that's, I think, a big part of the story. And how do you think this will is affecting Michigan and maybe in the long-term effect will continue to affect Michigan, this um, conflict within our nas- or our federal government? Well, I think it means that the federal government, you know, we're not going to be able to look to the federal government for leadership in some ways. Um, we're going to have to do some more things on our own. Mm-hmm. 
And it's going to be challenging. But I think as a state, you know, we have our own divisive issues we've seen over the last couple of years, whether it was right to work, whether it was, you know, other issues that have been very divisive here. And so I think at the local level and the state government level, you know, we're going to have to find some common ground and move forward as best we can, mm -hmm. given that the federal government is likely going to remain in a quagmire for some time. Do you have a prediction? Are there making are there bets being made in the yeah. <laughs> your right. department? Um, no, March Madness, but, October, right? Yeah, something. practically for economists, I guess. <laughs> right. um, my prediction is we will not default. I think we will, and it'll come right down to the wire. You know, I think maybe you know, well into Thursday, but you know, we'll find a deal that you know ultimately from the House representatives, where it's going to be both Democrats and Republicans mm -hmm. coming together signing a deal. The real question to me is how long is that deal going to last? Are we going to be back here in three or four months fighting the same battle? That's that's a concern. And then, you know, the other concern is if, you know, how what impact this is going to have. Because it is, it's interesting, you hear countries, you know, like China saying, this is it, you know, the United States is not going to be the leader anymore. You have to look to other countries, aka China, mm -hmm. to to provide leadership. So there's going to be consequences. I mean, at this point, it almost doesn't matter. You know, the short-term consequences can be avoided, the economic consequences. But I think from a political standpoint, other countries are going to start saying, you know, the United States is just not what it used to be. So we have to look at other places for leadership. So I think the damage is done to some extent already. That's very interesting that you say that. And looking at the government shutdown, you know, many of it was contributed because it didn't pass its budget bill by its deadline. And a big and a big reason the federal budget didn't get passed was largely due to the F Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that relationship? Well, I mean, ironically, they really don't, essentially. It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of it's the hostage being held <laughs> mm -hmm. for ransom. I mean, and that's really what it is. I mean, it's the Affordable Care Act was passed. It was, you know, codified by the Supreme Court as constitutional. You know, it's it's still being implemented, of course, and that's what the, you know, the Republicans were trying to use it as leverage, essentially, to get what they wanted. So, like, in any bargaining situation, they felt that was what they had, was to hold that up, try and so-called defund it, you know. Um, I think even a lot of Republicans now, especially in the Senate, are saying that's kind of silly. We don't need to do that. It's law, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to move forward. So, I mean, that's there isn't really a relationship, quite frankly. It's just that that was the convenient leverage they thought they had. Mm -hmm. And who do you think right now is hurting the most from this government shutdown? Um you know, I'd say right now it's hard to say. It's pretty diffuse. So mm -hmm. I think probably the most damage will be done to the government and the rep the people's feelings toward its government, you mm -hmm. know, and feelings towards Congress that we just can't seem to get anything done anymore, even the most basic things like passing a budget, which actually the Congress hasn't passed a budget in a number of years. They've just continued to pass what they call resolutions. And so, you know, that's concerning. You know, can our government get big things done anymore like we used to? And I, that's probably the, the initial damage. If there was a default that's a whole nother story. They would, you know, you're, you're, every one of us would be impacted by that. And your prediction, of course, is you don't think we'll default. Um, but what needs to be done to make sure we don't default? Well, I think, um, you know, we have to have, we have to decide how we're going to have a budgetary process in the mm -hmm. future that doesn't, you know, always end up at the eleventh hour with some crisis. I mean. We've got to make reforms to how we do budgeting in this country. I mean, state governments pass budgets, local governments pass budgets. Certainly the federal government should be able to pass a budget every year. Maybe we need to start doing multi-year budgets so that we don't have this battle every time. Um, you know, we need to have compromise. I mean, I accept that, you know, it's got to be looked at revenues. You need to look at do we need higher taxes? Do we need entitlement reform? You know, especially for younger people, these are issues you need to be concerned about. Medicare, you know, which is something like your parents, your grandparents are going to be, you know, using. So, you know, there's a clear benefit to even your own family, obviously, for these programs. At the same time, the costs are going to be tremendous. And we know Social Security is also, you know, under siege now financially. So we've got to find a common ground between the generations to say, what are we willing to pay for? 
What are we willing to tax ourselves at what level? How do we find a middle ground? You know, and that's it, this is not something we're going to resolve overnight, but mm-hmm. we need to start engaging. And younger people need to engage in this process because it is going to impact you. It may seem very abstract right now, but it is a very real issue. And how do they engage? What is your recommendation in that realm? I mean, my, you know, first of all, you need to read up, you know, obviously with the internet, there's an incredible amount of resources. There's a thing called the Citizen's Guide to the U.S. Government Budget. For example, it's on the U.S. Treasury website, right on the front page. Read that document. It's very easy to read. It's like 20 or 30 pages. What is the federal budget? How does it work? You know, trying to understand that as a, as a basis so you know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you know, engage. Representatives and senators do listen to people, believe it or not. They don't just listen to lobbyists. You know, you need to engage in, in talking to them, whether it's through, a, you know, whether it's emailing them or whatever form you want to do it in. You know, and then talking to your peers, you know, getting involved in organizations and saying, you know, these are issues that matter. You know, don't wait till you're 40 or 50. Mm-hmm. Get engaged now because, I mean, these issues are going to come forward. By the time you're 40, it may be too late <laughs> to resolve some of these issues. You need to do it now because we know we're facing big challenges in the future. You know, you have to be involved. I mean, you can be involved at the local level mm-hmm. of government, at the state level. You know, I think every level has different issues and challenges. You know, I would just say whatever form makes sense for you, you know, I think be engaged, talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents, talk to relatives. You know, how does how does you know, how does the federal government affect you? I mean, if you think about a shutdown, you know, a short term shutdown probably has you know not a huge impact on our lives. If it goes on and on, it, it absolutely will. It'll affect everything from having, you know, health and safety issues, air traffic control. Mm -hmm. I mean, you name it, there's lots of impacts that can happen over time. University funding, you know, for research is going to absolutely be impacted. Um, The state government will be impacted because it receives a lot of money from the feds. So that'll impact, you know, Michigan State University potentially as well. So, I mean, you have to engage however you can. But I would say, you know, read up. Be informed. My biggest thing is I just hear a lot of misinformation Mm -hmm. from politicians today. Now, you know, some of that may be on purpose, but but at least be informed so you can have an opinion and have a set of values that you think are important. But make sure you're basing it on facts, on evidence, not just on what you hear. You know, you need to do some digging and make sure what you you know, what you're saying makes sense. It's based on the real information because there's a lot of this misinformation out there that is really damaging in many ways. You know, it's important for all of us at this time to, you know, to engage, do what you can, tell people, tell your representative or senator, you know, I want this shutdown ended Mm -hmm. and we we should not default. I mean, default is a very dangerous place we don't want to go because the impacts are going to be enormous. You know, if you have student loans, it could impact what you pay on interest on those student loans. It'll impact your ability to travel overseas because it'll impact the dollar and the value of the dollar. It's going to impact people's abilities to buy cars and homes. I mean, we could enter another recession, potentially. It could be like 2008 when the financial crisis hit. So, I mean, the ramifications are enormous, and we need to vo- you need to send your voice to say, work together to find common ground. I mean, because that's something I think a lot of people on both sides are now saying we've got to do. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for your time. I think it's a learning experience for a lot of us. (laughs) Sure. Thanks. You're listening to Impact Exposure on 89FM. I'm Abby Newton, and this is Impact Exposure. You know, our studios are located in East Lansing, but I always look forward to doing stories outside of campus, expand the horizons, extend the comfort zone. And for this story, I went just up the road to explore Old Town Lansing, and I found a unique little store that just opened. I am Ria Banada, and that's about it. (laughs) But that isn't it. Vanetta just opened the Old Town General Store in her historic hometown in Lansing. <laughs> I grew up here in Old Town, just down here on Turner Street. Moved here from the Philippines in 1972. And then uh, in 1981, I graduated from high school here at Eastern High School. And then I took off and, you know, to sow my oats, so to speak. <laughs> 
um, and went away for quite a few years. And I've always wanted to come back to Old Town because this is kind of where my heart is. Vanetta says Old Town used to be a bustling area in the 70s. And then when downtown Lansing uh, was created, you know, the, the traffic sort of, div- you know, got diverted over there. So slowly this was kind of becoming more and more of a little bit of a ghost area. And at that time, when I was riding my bike from Turner Street all the way to LCC, really at night when I was coming home from school, I would ride my bike down the middle of the road because I didn't want anybody grabbing me from either side. (laughs) You know, I had to think this way. You know, it's a little little street smart person. Mm -hmm. Um, Literally. (laughs) Yeah, you had to be. And Vanetta hopes to revitalize the area of Old Town. Originally, my thought was I wanted to do everything kind of Michigan, organic, sustainable. And then as I researched this, it really wasn't possible and fill the needs of everybody that, of, of um, having a grocery store per se. You know, like, we don't produce salt in Michigan, okay? <laughs> or or um, we don't really have toothpaste or we don't have uh, recycled paper products that's affordable. I would start out looking in Michigan first. If I don't find it there, I'll go a little bit further out geographic- geographically. And so it might be Midwest, and then I'll go out even further. Like we have some products from Canada, for example, but really, Canada's closer than the UP, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, New York might be closer than (laughs) some parts of the UP. The new owner is also focusing on organic and natural foods. You know, I've always been a proponent for uh, keeping our environment intact for the next generation. That's how come we have sustainability on our sign, you know, it's okay to use what we have available to us now. And this is not just for agriculture, this is for everything. Use what is given to you now, but leave something for, for the next generation. And you know, don't deplete everything. But this is just to make it available for people that are right here. They don't have to drive anywhere. They can ride their bike here. I was fortunate to get a full tour of the new general store and a complete rundown of many of the products, from wine to jelly to um, salsa to happy cows. Tell me about the beef here. Is there a difference in how it's produced? Oh, yeah. Okay. These are happy cows. Happy cows. <laughs> happy cows from the Schneider okay. Family Organic and Dairy Farm. And, you know, these guys, it's kind of like, uh, how did he put it? Mr. Schneider told me. He goes, well... It's kind of like having your couch potato uh, versus the athlete, you know, because these cows, you know, they run around, they're free range. Uh, They graze all day long. They're not being fed grains because cows really are not a grain eater naturally. They're a grazing animal. And so the meat is a lot leaner. You know, these cows look you know, they're happy. They're not standing knee deep in their own stuff, you Uh know? So now here, what we have, I do try to carry um, a pretty good selection of gluten-free products too, Mm because more and more people are having Mm -hmm. problems with that. Um, And then we have, for example, like veggie burgers. Okay, there's nobody in Michigan that I found that (laughs) can wholesale and make veggie burgers. And we have a lot of vegetarians that come here. These pierogies are from Michigan. And those are great also. Um, now, what's your favorite flavor of the gelato? Oh my God, it's the, it's the, it's the dark chocolate. Oh. Right there. Dark cho- this, actually, where it says chocolate balsamic strawberry, mm-hmm. it sounds a little weird, but it's really good. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. But I would have great. to say the one that's sold the best is the hazelnut. We actually have probably about maybe six or seven varieties of, of Michigan wines. Um, the one that has sold the best for us is this Moabi, and it's a sparkling wine. Um, here, but I can say that all of our beers are all Michigan craft beers, because Michigan has great beer, Mm -hmm. so that hasn't been a problem. I mean, as far as, like, the names of some of these guys, who names these things? Like, (laughs) Final Absolution, you know, or Diabolical, (laughs) there's Dragon's Milk. This has been by far our, probably our biggest seller of okay. beer. Is that a dark? Yeah, it's a stout. It's really like good. It? Yeah, yeah, it's good, but it's very strong. And um, I'm not really good at describing beers. <laughs> it's hard. I'm more of a wine girl. <laughs> sure. But um, but I had to try it because everybody was drinking it, and I thought, well, what's 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 so good about it? Mm-hmm. I know that it's very strong. It has a high alcohol content. Okay. 
So like one beer might equal two. So drink it in moderation or <laughs> slowly or with bread. Uh, soak it up or something. <laughs> um, but as far as wines go, the one, my favorite, it's a vineyard here. Uh, dreaming tree. tree. It's a collaboration between Dave Matthews and acclaimed winemaker Steve Reeder. Very nice. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you're familiar with uh, Dave Matthews, he's got mm -hmm. a, I think, a song called Dreaming Tree. Yeah. And he also has a song called Crush. The one I like is Dreaming Tree Crush, which is a red blend, and it's just lovely, lovely one. You drank it all, didn't you? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I have to order an extra And then case back now. here, though, this is a really cool part, and it's one of the reasons why I really love this building. Mm -hmm. It had this oh, real wow. green space in the back. I just really saw it and I saw the possibility of extending my store further back and, and creating a nice space for people to be. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm hoping to be able to uh, host some um, acoustic concerts mm -hmm. back here. Wow, yeah, so really there's a nice. stage back there. And after the full tour, I asked how Vanetta would describe her store in one word. <sighs> Eclectic, you know, um, but as far, and even, it's hard, one word. <laughs> How about two? <laughs> I much kind of think of it as my second home. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how calm it has this feel about it. I mean, it's an extension of myself, really. Mm -hmm. If you come to my house, you'll see, it'll feel like this. <laughs> I don't have as much wine, but- For um, Impact News, <laughs> I'm Abby Newton. <laughs>
They're a national organization that collects data on website visits from all sorts of, or everybody who has a website. So we got information from them of websites that had been visited by children in the age group we were interested in. And we then looked for food products. And then we had research assistants go into each of those sites and see whether they had games. And that was how we collected the initial list of games. Okay. Then we went to our nutrition colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> and what we determined was that we had this huge list of, of food products. And from those food products, what we did was we looked at the food labels and got the nutrition information. And then we compared from the nutrition labels on these food products, we compared what the nutrition quality of each of those products were based on what we perceived to be acceptable standards. So we used four primary organizations that we believe are reputable uh, advocates for healthy eating. Mm -hmm. So the Food and Drug Administration, which we know is very important, um, the United States Department of Agriculture, um, the Institute of Medicine, which actually uh, is very fundamental in looking at evidence-based research relative to food and health, in, among other things, and the Center for Science in the Public Interest, which is a consumer advocate group. <clears throat> and so being, you know, we have a dietitian, <laughs> and then we've got the advertiser. So do you see that these two things are hugely sim symbiotic almost? Oh, a absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, we, we see with the food marketers that their obligation to their shareholders is to make a profit, so they're promoting their products. And there are n no clear government regulations regarding advertising targeted to children, uh, at least in terms of the, the quality of the food or the contents of the food or the tactics. There are some rules that have to do with things like how much time they can advertise on television. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as online, it's really pretty wide open, and the industry monitors itself. They, they self-regulate. So from an advertising perspective, I was really interested in how are they reaching kids um, and are they doing it with the kinds of products that a nutritionist would recommend. But the, the, the synergy came in in that um, Dr. Weatherspoon and her team are the experts who could answer that second mm -hmm. part. So we could look at what are the different tactics and where are they using them, what kinds of companies are using them. We could explore the public policy implications of uh, are there any regulations or not. And then the, on the nutrition side, they could also take that same policy question and look at it from the actual scientific evidence of the contents of the food. And the reason why we're concerned from a nutrition perspective, because one of my foci is childhood obesity. Um, one of the things that's happened in the last, say, 10 or 20 years or so is that we've seen an increase in diet-related diseases in addition to obesity, things like type 2 diabetes and hypertension and cardiovascular disease occurring in younger and younger and younger children. And so we know that there is a diet or food intake, a food choice link, and we also know that physical activity is a big problem. And so, in a sense, the way I saw it was that we've got two problems over here. We've got poor quality foods that are being advertised that are actually generating a higher intake and potentially of what we call energy-dense, calorie-dense rather than nutrient-dense foods. And then at the same time, we also because we are a technology society, and one of the things that's decreased over time is this whole concept of increasing our physical activity. Children literally playing versus playing outside versus playing with a game, and so it's a decrease uh, actual physical activity as well in conjunction. So those are two bad recipes. It's a bad combination for being an increased risk for childhood obesity. And how do you combat that? I mean, you found this research, and now what? What can you do, what do you hope is done to fix this problem or move toward a solution? Um, it's a, it might be a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I think I'll start and then I'll have okay. uh, Dr. Quilliam continue after that. But one of the things that I think is that while it can be negative, I think it can also be used positively um, in that instead of marketing or using this opportunity to market 
poor quality from a dietary perspective foods, why can we not use that to promote things like fruits and vegetables and other healthy types of foods? The other thing that I think um, that we really need is some kind of standardized um, regulation for what can and cannot be done. Dr. Killian mentioned earlier on that um, these folk, industry folks self-regulate. And that's just almost perfect because you can't control the good guys from the bad guys. And so there might be some folk that might have uh, a good intent, but then how do you control those folk that are really more interested in the mm -hmm. capitalistic gain versus, <laughs> you know, whether or not we have more children uh, that have problems. So I think so. Marketing is important, but control of that marketing, and, and, and I think Dr. Kelly will give you a little bit more information about that. But then, again, I think the important thing would be to try and maybe use this if this is the way young people communicate in more of a positive way. Mm -hmm. In, in terms of the, uh, the control, a few years ago, <coughs> there was a lot of um, public cry, outcry about childhood obesity and the, the contribution of advertising and marketing to the problem. Um, and a group of large food manufacturers got together and said, we don't need government regulations. We will improve the way that we market our products to children. And they formed a group called the Children's Food and Beverage Advertising Initiative. That group now includes most of the large food marketers. And they set out some very general standards about um, promoting what they called better for you products and healthy lifestyles. Mm -hmm. But self-regulation in any industry is voluntary. There's no government behind it, so there's no penalty per se for not following the rules. And the initial pledges, each company was able to discreetly identify what they would do, what nutrition criteria they would use, and how they would incorporate healthy lifestyle messages. About the same time, the, the efforts by the government to create some standards continued, and they had um, a group called the Interagency Working Group that had representatives from the USDA, the FDA, and the FTC that proposed standardization across the board. That effort has pretty much been defeated. Um, but the CFBAI companies have continued to work to strengthen um, what they're doing as individual companies. And they now say things like it has to be um, a generally accepted governmental scientific standard for mm -hmm. healthy foods. Which was one of the things that we were interested in looking at with this research when we looked at these four different standards, we found they're not all the same. So a product might pass on one of the standards and fail on one of the others. Um, the, the CFBA companies have now stated that at the end of this year they will have consistent standards across all organizations. And we'd like to, con to see continued efforts in that realm. If, if the government is not providing a single standard, we'd at least like to see the companies helping parents uh, because the, the parents are the last line of defense on this. And what we've learned in, some, uh, in a recent survey that we did that we haven't published yet is that parents really aren't aware that this is going on. That, that was my next yeah, question. Yeah, the, the advert mm -hmm. games are not, um, the term itself is not known to parents, and even when we describe it to them, they're not really sure if their kids are playing these games or not. And there are so many sources. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the apps, there's the computer, there's the television, mm -hmm. there's the Game Boy, if those still exist, I'm not sure. But, <laughs> right. you know, there's, I mean, in such a culture of connectivity, mm -hmm. an issue like this, you know, can be used in a positive light, but it's almost, does it become a battle for positivity versus negativity, or is it come down to the parents? And, and uh, it really does, in the end, given our current regulatory environment, it comes down to the parents as that last line of defense. Mm -hmm. And so the parents have to know that this is going on and help mediate the effects by talking about it with their children or monitoring the kinds of games that they're playing because um, the games themselves, they're fun and engaging and if the child likes the game and they like the characters in the game, that there's a concept called affect transfer, that the, their positive feelings about the game are likely to transfer to the food and then the child is asking the parent to buy that particular food. And then in the end, it does come down to the parent, though, who's purchasing the food. So that's another, you know, element to look into. But, I mean, wow. 
that's interesting. Yeah. And, and, it's... Then, and then with the with the four different standards, mm -hmm. how are parents to know what are the right choices to make? Mm -hmm. So parents need a lot of help in this regard mm -hmm. as well. And I think from an interdisciplinary perspective, most times people say health professionals are in one corner and um, what they might perceive to be non-health professionals as being in a different corner. And I think this is a really great example of how integrated some of our disciplines here at Michigan, unusual ways that folk don't normally typically think of um, are really integrated and why we need one another, especially from a research as well as application perspective. Because, you know, I learned a lot about Advergames, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that my colleagues from advertising learn a lot about um, how to classify foods because, you know, we use terminology sometimes that may or may not be appropriate, and we're also concerned about how, how this might transfer to mm -hmm. families. So I think that this is an important... Um, one of the things we were excited about was the amount of national and actually global press mm -hmm. that this um, article received. Um, so we're very excited about that because I think that Michigan State has been highlighted um, phenomenally, well yes, um, <laughs> and, relative to this. And for your perspectives, I mean, this is your baby, this is your project, so what's your vision? What do you hope to be, you know, how do you hope it's used? We kind of talked about what you think its effect will be and how you can change it, but for you, do you want to continue this study? Do you want to really focus on one way? I guess, what do you foresee for your future? Um, we, I think we have a lot of ideas about <laughs> where we want right to, to continue with this, um, and we have a lot of data from related studies still to analyze, because in connection with this, um, this was part of a, a large project that was funded by a National Institutes of Health grant. Mm -hmm. And as part of that study, we had a, an advergame created that used a brand that wouldn't be familiar to children here, an Australian cereal brand. And we had different versions of it that we had children play. Wow. So we, we want to look at, do the effects differ depending on how the brand is portrayed in the game? and do the effects differ depending on the age of the child? And then if we can learn from that how these games work for the for-profit sector, for advertisers, can we then take those same ideas, these fun, engaging games, and translate that into some of the Education. more um, nutrient-dense food products rather mm -hmm. than the, the energy dense. Do you think education, the education realm in our society will ever get a hold of this and well in where advert games become almost a curriculum? I think that most certainly I think it's an important part of nutrition education. I mean, we're looking right now, we establishing that there's a connection. Mm -hmm. But I think to take you talked about future research, one of the important things with future research would be to use this as an integral part of some type of ed education promotional type of um, project and see how it differs maybe amongst different um, um, income groups, amongst different ethnicities, amongst different age groups as well. Even with the children, you know, is it a little bit different with mm -hmm. younger children versus middle age children, if you want to call it that, versus, um, you know, older children, because you just never know how the impacts might be a little bit different or what types of approaches work better. It seems like you've built that awareness and you've started the conversation, so we're very excited to see what comes next. But thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're thank very you. welcome. Enjoy Thank you. <laughs> And again, that was Elizabeth Quillman and Lorraine Weatherspoon from Michigan State University. You're listening to Impact Exposure on 89FM. Now, it hasn't gotten too cold yet on Michigan State's campus. It's a time of year where students are still smiling and then leaves are falling and students are spending a lot of time outside. And as they're spending a lot of time outside, many make a stop at an Eat at State food truck. Now the food trucks can be found all around campus on different days, but in the food trucks, there's a very special signature item that actually won an award this summer. And for a dollar more, would you like to make it a cow? Sure. MSU's Eat at State food truck signature smoked cheddar cheeseburger won the best local food recipe in the nation. This cheeseburger was created with the help of locally produced foods and Chef Kurt Kwiatkowski, who has been the corporate chef at MSU for four years. Now I visited the award-winning chef to find out his secrets and try the famous cheeseburger for myself. The first thing I asked him was how difficult it was to produce a cheeseburger in a truck. 
it's not that difficult, you know. It took a lot more in the planning and figuring out, you know, okay, we first we want a signature item. And all right, what's that signature item going to be? All right, we want it to be a burger. All right, if I want it to be a burger, because I love burgers, I want it to be something that's delicious, something that's a little bit unique. And uh, so I think everyone really enjoyed all the practice runs in, in figuring out what that burger was going to be and then trying to figure out what's going to make it special. And we started tying in with all the great partners that we have on campus with the beef from Michigan State and then the greens from the Student Organic Farm. Uh, getting the cheese from the MSU dairy. The cheese? It was an important decision. We've got seven different cheeses that we can use. Let's take them all. And John from the dairy store was like, all right, you know, here you go. Go play. And it kind of honed in on two of them specific because I felt like the smoked cheddar would be just too powerful by itself. Mm -hmm. And so we're cutting it with some sharp cheddar, both, both from the MSU dairy. And uh, it just works out to be a great pairing. It took the creative minds about a month to fine-tune the cheeseburger. However, the staff very much enjoyed that oh, fine-tuning. Yeah. The, the staff, oh, chef, did we need to do another sample to make sure everything's okay? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, could you show me how this burger's made? Sure, absolutely. Right. With that, great. chef and I journeyed to the food truck. Okay. The kitchen inside this truck was probably about 10 square feet, tops. Five bodies fluidly moved throughout the truck as burgers, grilled cheese, and lemonades were passed to waiting customers. We're going to walk her through how easy it is to make a burger. And then hopefully you're going to want to taste it afterwards. Okay, good. Fresh greens, ripe red tomatoes, and chopped cheeses line the wall as a sizzling black grill toasted bread and beef. And then Chef took over. So we start with our beef. We've got our little food truck seasoning. There's about uh, nine or ten different ingredients, but everything from cracked black pepper to turmeric to granulated garlic to... Uh, dried onions, paprika, so it's, it's a lot of stuff. You know, once you make up the seasoning blend and then you can get the cheese right at the MSU Dairy Store. Um, the pink beef the began browning as I listened to the sizzle of the grill. Next, Chef took a handful of two cheeses and delicately placed them on the beef. Then, he surprised me by grabbing a water bottle and what looked like an upside-down bowl with a handle on top. And so the way we melt the cheese, it's, it's kind of like an old-school diner thing where you hood it and you uh, put some water on it so the steam melts the cheese really, really good. That, that was part of the design of the burger, too. When I knew that the only piece of equipment we were going to basically have to cook to order was a flat top, the burger was designed with that in mind. In no more than two minutes, the hood was removed and the burger was placed on a toasted bun and ready for dressing. Just spring, fresh spring mix, red onions and tomato. I washed his dark green lettuce, a few red onions and a tomato slice, added even more color to the bun and the cheese-covered beef. Chef said the burger was a beauty. You know, it's just something that's super special, you know, because you can still see some of the burger, you see the tomato, you see the greens poking out of that bun. The bun's nice and caramelized, browned on top. And, it, it, you know, it's not necessarily grease, it's just some of the stuff that comes from that sharp cheddar, a little bit of as that cheddar melts. I was handed a glass of lemonade, complete with a sliced lemon and sliced orange, and took a big bite of the signature smoked cheddar cheeseburger. <laughs> nice delicious. I can confidently say that I like the judge's choice of the best local food recipe. My next adventure, the popple dessert at the food truck. For Impact News, I'm Abby Welcome back. I'm Abby Newton, and this is Exposure on Impact 89FM. Now, this past week, Wharton Center welcomed Flashdance to its stage. Flashdance tells the story of Alex, who aspires to go to ballet school. To get there, she works two jobs as a welder and an exotic dancer. I sat down with the leading lady, Jillian Mueller, and her leading man, Corey Mack. 
So first off, you know, in your biography, this says, you said this is a dream role for you. Yeah, this is totally, um, totally a dream role. They don't really make parts like this that often, if ever. Um, yeah, it's huge. Um, it's, well, one, one, because it's so iconic from the movie, like, it's, it's this famous 80s movie, and everybody knows Jennifer B, like, this was her, like, breakout thing, and so, for one, it's that, and, and from a musical standpoint, to be able to sing, dance, and act at this, this much, and at this level, on stage, in one show, is so, is so rare, I've never really seen it like this, so to be able to do it, it's awesome, and it's my first, you know, lead part, so to be able to, this is my first lead, and it's this, it's, it's pretty cool, so, which I think is good, I think you kind of can't be jaded and play a part like this, just because it's, it's all about, like, you know, pursuing your dreams and stuff. You know, you get on stage, you have your performance, then you get off, is it hard to take off the act, and, you know, the personality that you had developed on stage? Um, you know, you hear about different actors that are, like, you know, these method actors, or whatever, that, you know, keep on, if they're trying to be a part, they, like, live in the part. I don't think you can do that because I think you lose your mind. I mean, as actors, you're naturally crazy anyway, but you need to be able to turn something on and turn something off. Mm -hmm. But it um, also depends on the show, too. Totally, I think absolutely. In this, I think we're very similar to our characters. I agree. I mean, not very similar, but similar enough that when you come off stage, it's just, like, if we're doing, like, Street Kerning Desire or, like, a really heavy play, I can see where... In the, in the span of like from when you walk on stage to the curtain call, if you're off stage during any amount of time, Be in the I could part, see where yeah. you could still kind of keep in the character a little bit just so you don't lose, lose that like heavy, heavy totally. um, emotion that mm -hmm. you tried to conjure up um, the whole time. But I just even know with this, like, because I feel like I've been eating, sleeping, breathing, living in this show and this part f since I started in April. And I remember there were a couple weeks where our director came out and we were making changes to the show and it was literally 24-7 thinking, obsessing about the show. And it kind of weighs heavy on you after a while and, and you, do, you literally feel like a crazy person. Because you just don't know, like you're, you're so, like you forget that there's like this like outside world. It's kind of crazy and so for me I'm like if this is how I feel doing flash dance I literally couldn't imagine doing something <laughs> like really really heavy sure. but when you're like you know when you're committing yourself to something and you want to do a good job and you want to make it right and and do the best you can and um yeah it's definitely a lot so that's why I think it's important like for me I, I need to be able like during the day or after the show kind of just socializing with everybody and just kind of like just being a normal person mm -hmm. is extremely helpful to me and my sanity. <laughs> um, yeah, because people always ask people like, "How are you even? How do you even like go out and hang out with people after the show?" And for me, I, I always feel like I need to because mm -hmm. if I just did the show and then locked myself in my hotel room, I would just there's no way. There's you no might, way. You might start dressing like the eighties. Yeah, yeah. I, I, God, <laughs> I'm wearing spandex. I feel like that's close You're enough. Doing okay. <laughs> so, Corey, what attracted you to this part of Nick? Um. Well. I I watched this um, New York Times special on like the the top six women of uh, of uh, the Broadway season of this current year. It was really cool. It was like two hours. It was online, and Cicely Tyson, who was nominated this year, said, um, "Never take a show because of the show. Take a show because of the role." Oh. And I really liked that. I read the script. It is a really, you don't get this in musicals very often. It's, it's almost like a play arc that he has, um, which is cool. Um, that yeah, I, I was lucky to get a role that really goes somewhere mm -hmm. during the, the course of the show. And the, it was all completely, like, perfectly set in my range vocally. Um, and uh, I, I kind of, like, fit so well with Jill and... I think there are, there are those things that just click sometimes. Yeah, I was like, and I you're like, do this. yeah, and it just like where you know that it, it's right. So what's the chemistry between you two off the stage? I can't stand him. I hate her. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're like we can separate you two if you like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we get along really great. Oh, we're, she's like one of my best friends. Yeah, mm. we are. We're, we have our um, yeah, we're definitely very close friends, um, which is great. I think it makes it so much easier to do. It's so comfortable. Like you don't. I don't even think about it. Like when we're doing yeah. the show, you're like, yeah, this is this. Yeah. With, with this, not that I've done it that often, but anytime I've had to do it, 
it's never and maybe I feel like I'm probably just lucky that I've gotten pretty good dudes in the past but um, it's never really I always say with with things in general it's not awkward unless you make it awkward mm -hmm. so if you're just like in it and you just go go for the ride and kind of embrace it yeah it's totally it. and as long as you know the person's cool and they're mm -hmm. on the same page you're fine okay yeah so what's your favorite part of the musical um I like I guess there's two. I like our scene in the loft, which is fun that we just, there's no outside factors that we have to compete with. It's just the two of us kind of on stage. And I think that's the only time that playing. really happens. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't have a, a, a time crunch. We don't have a lot of, we weren't given a lot of like, you have to be here at this time. You have to say this this way. So each, each night it's kind of a different, it's kind of a different take on it, which is, which is what an actor dreams of doing. Mm -hmm. No one likes to be set in, in one thing for an entire scene. I think that's, that's one of the scenes where we really have an opportunity to kind of um, have fun and make it new every night. I like that scene and I like the scene um, with all the guys in the middle of act one um, in the workstation where they're kind of, workstation? What, what is that? <laughs> in the workplace, like the work, the work, the lunchroom where they're kind of giving me. The workstation. They're giving me, can I say the S word? No. <laughs> for for um, not not using my game appropriately, I guess, with this girl. China. <laughs> and how about you? What's your favorite part? See, the thing is, is I actually love the water dance. Um, I love doing it, but sometimes I don't like it because the water's really cold, and so sometimes <laughs> like I, I dread it a little bit just because I was like, oh, I don't feel like being cold right now. Mm -hmm. But I love like the, the choreography in that. I think it's um, so cool. Um, I love that. I do really like singing. There's this end song that I sing, Let Go. It's right before I do the final dance, and it's just me on stage, and I and it's it's like me sitting on a on this couch like – like I'm supposed to cry in the scene and, and I and I do every night. Half the time it's because I'm just so tired <laughs> that you're like, oh my God, I'm just sitting here and I just need to breathe. Um, but it's kind of, it's it's amazing. Like I, it's just me on stage singing this big song and it's very powerful. And so I love that moment. Um, yeah, as of right now, okay. those are my two favorites. And you know, with that big stage, do you feel stage fright? And if so, what's your pre- performance rituals maybe um in the beginning I definitely was freaking scared <laughs> um, <laughs> okay um yeah I guess the my first like three shows I was really 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 nervous um more nervous than I can remember being in a, in a pretty long time um uh but I'm kind of used to the nerves only because I've always been an understudy before this so going on as an understudy um, as opposed to like being coming into a show as the lead, um, I think the understudy is always much more scary because you don't have as much rehearsal. No one's used to you playing that role. It's Everyone's expecting someone thing, else. Yeah. It's usually like you're on an hour beforehand, and you you know about an hour beforehand, and then you're just like thrown on the stage. I understudied Jesus in Godspell on Broadway. A little nervous. I, exactly, <laughs> and that was definitely I was. I was I was having a panic panic attack like an hour before the show. I was freaking out because I don't leave the stage. I I have ninety percent of the lines. I sing like the whole show, and there's not there was no opportunity for me to go off stage and like check my notes and like see what's next. So it was so scary. Um, so I feel like after I did that, I could do anything. So this was this was easy compared to that. So. Yeah. No. I. It's totally true. Like. Um, yeah, nothing kind of compares to being like an like understudy nerves. Like I've been a swing before, I've been an understudy. And when you go on for something that oh my god, it's insane. Those nerves are unlike anything else. But when I first started the show, I was definitely my first show I was I was definitely like peeing my pants it's a little kind bit. It's gone now though. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't really get Yeah, now I mean now now I I kind of look forward to it or like if actually if I have friends in the audience well, or like that's what family I was about to say. like my parents came on set on Sunday and I was like shaking. yes people if you when I have people in the audience like friends and stuff and family not even so much family anymore but I guess a little bit in the beginning but um 
especially like friends in the audience like that's what will get me because you want it to be I'm like I want it to be a really good show for them it's more like that and you like feel this pressure of like I want I want all those good moments that I like I want those all to be there um sometimes or sometimes if I do get nerves it'll be like these like random show like but they're like to me they're like good nerves it Mm -hmm. just means that I'm like want it to be a good show and so yeah exactly exactly now what would you tell aspiring actors maybe even people who are in college studying acting and are praying to god they get their break soon this is oh this is such weird okay there's all of the 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 usual advice Mm -hmm. like persistence and work hard definitely always my big thing is absolutely work hard work hard um because that's that's how it happens but my piece of advice is always don't listen to anyone, which sounds weird because especially people that are in school, it's like you're told to listen to your teachers. But because um, I was always, uh, uh, because I feel like I've had maybe a different, um, I got into this business kind of different. I, I didn't do it traditionally with like going to school and, and then kind of doing it the standard way that people kind of always think you're crazy and they're like, oh, please, you think, you know, I was constantly told, you're too young. I was always told, wait. Like, I was, you know, like, wait until you're, like, in your 20s, really in your 20s to, like, start going for it. And I'm like, why? If I'm, like, want to go for it now, why why am I going to just, like, what, so sit around on my couch and wait to get older? Like, what? So people are always, people are always trying to tell you as if they know what's best for you. And people that don't even know you that well are always trying to tell you what's best for you and what you need to do. At the end of the day, you know what's best for you and listen to your gut. Be Don't be delusional about it. But um, but I, I say, you know, it's really important to go for it because I think a lot of people get stuck. A lot of people train and go to school for it, but then they get they get stuck or they just get scared and they don't really put themselves out there. And you have to just you have to just do it. You got to just bite the bullet and do it. Um, yeah, that's good. I, I, I'm, I would say along with the whole scared thing, that's what I was going to say in the beginning. Because, um, yeah, I think a lot of people uh, move to New York and want to be something big, but they don't really give it 150%. And I think it just takes that extra little nudge that a lot of people don't have to to um, say you want to produce a concert or something. You want to do something on your own. You want to you do, do a concert of, like, all your own songs. You could choose to just go 200% and do it or you could be like I'm going to wait a month I'm going to do it in a month <laughs> because I'm I'm nervous about like something about it I don't know but um there's excuses. just making excuses yeah just don't be scared just do it just do it yeah well, thank you guys very much I appreciate it and best of luck thank you But a slow glowing dream that your fear seems to hide deep inside your mind. All alone I have cried, silent tears full of pride in a world. all we have this evening. Thank you for spending time with us on this fine Tuesday. I hope you have a fantastic week. 
I also want to wish the best of luck to our colleagues who right now are representing Impact 89FM in New York City as we compete to be named Station of the Year for the CMJ Music Awards. Also, a special thanks for producer Gabriela Saldivia, who's actually in New York City right now, our superb sub-engineer and programming director, Kyle Pekinski, and our station manager, Sam Riddle, as well as our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Abby Newton, Impact Exposure, 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89 FM.